0: It's uh, good to be here. It's good to see all of you. Yes, we are doing Jonah. Uh, We're doing Jonah and we're doing chapters 1 and 2 as you can see this week and uh, next week we'll finish it off. Uh, Jonah as a person or Jonah, his ministry is a little bit like the old jokes that go I've got some good news and I've got some bad news for you. Um, They go a little bit like this. So the doctor comes along, the patient's in the bed and he says, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news for you. What do you want to hear first? He said, well, well, I'll hear the bad news. And he said, well, I've got to amputate both your legs. He said, well, what's the good news? He said, the man next door wants to buy both your shoes. Now, they're not great jokes, but um, Jonah's ministry was a little bit like that. Uh, Jonah's ministry was good news to Israel and bad news to Nineveh. And just before we kick off how about we pray Gracious God we thank you that you pursue us Uh, You certainly pursued Jonah Uh, You you pursued him so that you could uh, show yourself to him You could make yourself known to him even more deeply Uh, And you pursue us in Jesus Christ Uh, Help us to enter into the story of Jonah in an appropriate way uh, help us to see uh, and delight in the way that the story is told uh, but help us also to understand how you confront us as well in this story. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. It's a short book. It's. Uh, uh, normally things that are short have been told over and over and over again so there's a degree of elegance there's nothing that's wasted there's nothing that's superfluous within it and Jonah the book is exactly like that let me introduce you to Jonah Jonah was a prophet probably around about the year 800 to uh, 780 BC he did his ministry in the northern kingdom of Israel at a time when being a prophet in Israel was a pretty tough gig Jonah had a great ministry a great prophecy let me read to you from 2 Kings chapter 14 verses 24 and 25 what it says about Jonah in the 15th year of Amaziah son of Joash the king of Judah Jeroboam son of Jehoash king of Israel became king in Samaria and he reigned 41 years he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam son of Nebat which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the sea of the Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel spoken through his servant Jonah son of Amittai the prophet from gath Hepher. Okay so so that starts out and you think, Blimey Charlie, here's Israel and, and once again they've got a king that's leading it up the garden path and into exile. But during a time when the kings were leading Israel away from God, God, and you expect that any prophet worth his salt is going to be given a message about doom and gloom. Jonah of all the prophets is given this great message. The kingdom is going to be extended. You're going to have more land. You're going to have more possibilities. And so it was. Uh, What he didn't know was that in 720 720 BC, around about 60 years later, the northern kingdom would be swallowed up by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a terrible bunch of people when they were uh, camped on your doorstep. Uh, Normally they brought some people from the previous town, They would be outside your door or outside your walls and they would crucify people from the previous town and they'd say if you don't give up right now this is going to be you. Uh, They were incredibly warlike and ruthless. And Jonah gets the job to go off to Assyria and speak to the Ninevites which was the capital of Assyria. But before we go there I want us to stop with Jonah just a little while longer. I want to explore his name. Names in the Bible, of course, are incredibly significant. Um, And Jonah's name, I think, is also incredibly significant. Jonah's name means dove. That's what it means. I want to call him from time Mr. Dove. That's, That's who Jonah is. But doves are also significant in the Bible. Anybody want to tell me uh, the first mention of uh, of a dove in the Bible? Noah, Noah. that's right. Noah. no, that's the first mention. Uh, Noah's in the ark. All the animals, all the animals are there, and uh, Noah sends out a bird. What's the first bird that he sends out? It's not the dove. It's a raven. Okay, the raven flies. Noah sends it out so that he might be able to work out if there's any dry land that he can go towards and let all these animals out and get on with his life. Uh, The raven doesn't do much of a job so he sends out the dove and the dove goes backwards and forwards and eventually comes back with a sprig of of an olive branch in its mouth showing that not only had the land dried out but basically the trees were beginning to grow again. Now the the rabbis have suggested that uh, that's a symbol of Israel. The dove is a symbol of Israel largely because... All the first animal uh, the, the dove is the first animal in all of the lists of sacrificial animals, all the animals that are clean uh, the smallest the first sacrifice that you could make was the sacrifice of a dove. dove and here is a picture of the first clean animal, Israel leading all the other animals to the place of refuge to a place where they can start all over again it was a recapturing in a sense of what Israel's great plan was as it was outlined to, to Abraham, the forefather of Israel and especially in the last part of Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 where the great blessing that, that Abraham has to bring to the world is that through him all the families, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed under the curse of sin and rebellion and death and disease disruption, fragmentation through Babel. Through all of the curses, Israel would be the one nation who would demonstrate to the world that was lost in sin and darkness and idolatry how the nations were meant to live, how to live under the blessing of God. Now I want to suggest to you that that this book of Jonah is many layers. It's not only the story about a disobedient Jonah, a disobedient prophet. Underneath that there is also the story of another dove, the dove Israel who is also disobedient. One of the things that I've noticed in in looking at Jonah is that there are strong allusions also to the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son Uh, and I want to suggest to you that there's a reason for that that the story of Israel and the story of God's people is the reoccurring story over and over again of both the Old and the New Testament and so it's not surprising that we hear resonating sounds of the same story over and over again. In the first two chapters, Jonah's going to look a lot like the younger prodigal son. Unfortunately, in the last two chapters, he's going to look like a lot like the older son. And as I go through, I'm just going to let you know, uh, we'll be talking about Jonah and what Jonah does and then I'm going to throw in an Israel bit and then I'm going to th- throw in a uh, prodigal son bit. Okay, So that's, that's the way we're going to play. Well, Jonah is given some bad news to tell and we see that in uh, Jonah chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 and if you've got your Bible there, now's the time to open it up. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. There was no doubt that the Assyrians were wicked. It's no doubt that the old capital city of Nineveh was also wicked. The Lord, the God of heaven and earth, has spoken to Jonah, his prophet, and called him to to deliver bad news to the people of Nineveh. But Jonah's response is a shock. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port After paying the fare he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish To flee from the Lord Jonah seems to be acting out a strange parody of another psalm about a dove uh, Psalm 55 uh, starting with verse 4 My heart is in anguish within me The terrors of death assail me Fear and trembling have beset me Horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I might have the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter, far from the tempest and the storm. Well, this dove is certainly flying away, but this dove is going to go straight into a storm. This dove is not flying to rest, This dove is flying away from rest, from true rest, from God. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, but he is prepared to go to the ends of the earth. That's what Tarshish represents. It's basically Spain. It's the end of the known world. Nineveh was across the desert, so Jonah goes down to the Mediterranean coast and this dove is going to get away from God away from the Lord and as far away from his demands as possible now if you're thinking that Jonah's just running away from a tough geek from having to deliver bad news to a bunch of people whose first response is probably if not to shoot the messenger then at least crucify him I think you're wrong Jonah isn't afraid of death I'm going to point that out later on Jonah isn't afraid of death And he certainly doesn't seem to be afraid of the Lord. He is running away from God. That's what's going on. God said, go east, young men. But Jonah is going west. Not to flee from the Assyrians at Nineveh, but to flee from the Lord of heaven and earth. Jonah is running away from God. One of the things that we notice as we go through this chapter and as we go through Jonah is that everything else is obedient to God except for God's prophets. God sends a mighty storm, a mighty wind and it's obedient. God sends a great fish and it's obedient. Uh, Sailors get converted. All of Nineveh gets converted. God sends a a worm. God sends a, a plant to grow up overnight. God sends a a scorching wind everything is obedient to God except for God's prophet except for God's man Jonah wants to get away from God but God sends God sends God sends creation is responsive but the person who is meant to bring the word of God to the nations isn't and if we're right about Jonah and the story of Israel, then neither were his Saviour people. The people who are supposed to take the message, the truth about who God is, the true God, to live a life that's different and significant among the nations. They also were disobedient. Well, Jonah goes down to Joppa, he gets into a boat, and he gets disturbed sleep in verses 4 to 7. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So the ship leaves the harbour of Joppa, goes out into the Mediterranean. It's a beautiful day. Not a cloud in the sky. Then suddenly something unusual happens. A storm of incredible ferocity is whipped up. A wind is so great That the ship itself is being dashed to pieces, and all the pagan sailors are afraid. They are afraid of dying, and they start crying out to all their gods. Any lucky rabbit's foot, any port in a storm, any god in a storm, in fact, will be good enough. And so they pray. They cover all of their bases. They call call out to their special gods, and just for good measure, they throw the cargo overboard so that the boat's going to uh, float a little bit higher. What really is amazing is the contrast between Jonah and the sailors. The guys who know the sea, the guys who make their living by the sea, they are afraid. They are not only getting wet, they are wetting themselves. But Jonah is not getting wet, he is asleep. The captain goes down below deck he moves one of the, uh, the wool bales and there all of a sudden maybe on a few sacks of wheat there is Jonah God's man, God's prophet Mr. Mr. Dove asleep. I expect the captain when he signed him on probably expected that he'd have his, uh, his head over the side of the ship and throwing up but no this landlubber is able to sleep through this enormous storm is oblivious to what is going on. He is dead, literally, to the world as well as figuratively. And the captain rouses him from his sleep. How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us. Maybe he, he will do something so we won't perish. Well, the pagan sailors had tried prayer and that didn't work and now they're going to try blame. They cast lots, they drew straws, whatever the equivalent was in those days. But Jonah lost out. He got the short straw and all the signs pointed to him. And they asked him a series of questions. They're going to ask him questions like, Who has done this? What do you do? Where do you come from? What's your nationality? And the answers that they get all point to very disturbing news. And so they asked him in verses 8 to 11, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them and they asked, What have you done? Now just at that point, I want want you to point out to you a rhetorical device a way that that Jonah is set up often you'll get this situation where you get a response and you don't know what's happened and later on you're told why there was this response. Why are they terrified? Well they're terrified because they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher so they asked him what should we do to make the sea calm for us? It's funny, isn't it? There's Jonah running away from the Lord. You you do not get a prophet who is as disobedient as Jonah. Nobody matches up to Jonah's disobedience. Who are you? Where do you come from? Who's done this? And suddenly, Jonah starts spouting the creed. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I mean it just comes straight out I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the land here is a guy who's got impeccable theology it's not only at his fingertips it's at his tongue tip and he rattles it off and then the next thing he rattles off is I'm running away from him he can talk the talk but he's not walking the walk he's walking he's running away that's what he's doing he's trying to get as far away from God as possible this God this God is the God of heaven who made the sea and the land and here is Israel not just Mr. Dove but the Dove here is Israel worshipping the Lord that brought them out of Egypt by the means of a golden bull and an orgy Uh, Aaron make us gods well give give us some of your earrings so Aaron makes a golden calf out of the earrings the golden earrings and says this is the Lord your God who brought you out of Israel impeccable theology the golden bull is a bit of a problem though and then they had an orgy impeccable theology just didn't match up with what they were doing they were undercutting everything that they were called to be in the same way that Jonah was the prodigal son good Jewish boy called to live a life of impeccable wholesome holiness he runs away to another country where he's able to do exactly what he wants we're in the same story over and over again they say that confession is good for the soul and it might be but it's certainly not good for the storm because the storm gets wilder and wilder and so they ask a question well what do we do what can we do to make the storm come down what can we do to be safe and in verses 12-16 we have man overboard. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will be calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come on you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Well, the answer to the sailors' question was to throw Jonah overboard, and then the storm would be calm. Jonah knew he was the reason for the storm he knew that God was in control he knew that he was disobedient and he knew that God had sent this to knock some sense into Jonah now again I want to raise the possibility at this point that Jonah may well be far happier to die than to go back and have to go to Nineveh I want to suggest to you that for Jonah death is an even more effective way of getting what he wants than going to Tarshish. Jonah is not afraid of death. He is not afraid of going to to Nineveh and getting killed. He is afraid of something more horrific than that. When we find out, we will be with the great fish. Our stomachs too will be turned by, by Jonah. The reason why Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh is terrible. Dying will make his message completely undeliverable. The sailors were not happy to be instruments of Jonah's destruction. They do their best to row back to land. And as if it was possible, the storm actually gets wilder than before. It's amazing, isn't it? Here the pagans actually show themselves as having more just common human decency than the bloke who represents God's people. But it's not doing anything. Things are only going from bad to worse. So the sailors get there, they get Jonah and they pray to God for what you are about to receive make us truly forgiven. Now this is not our idea. We're throwing him overboard, but this is what you're brought about. Don't hold this man's, this innocent man's blood against me. It's interesting you call, that they call him innocent, isn't it? Um, I, I, I would think if you looked up a dictionary, Jonah shouldn't occur under the heading innocent. Here is a guy who's been completely disobedient. They take him up and throw him overboard and suddenly the violent waves become a stillness and the howling wind, a silence. And they are suddenly moved from being terrified of death to a wholesome fear of the Lord. And they offer a sacrifice and they make vows to the God of Israel. The God of Israel at one stage may have only been for them another God amongst many but suddenly in this experience he is their God. And one would have to think it's almost a shame that Jonah is taking this attitude of not going to Nineveh when he seems to be such an effective evangelist to non-Jews even in his disobedience. The non-Jews can't seem but help them uh, can't can't help themselves but become believers in the God of Israel. Well, what's been happening to uh, to Jonah all of this time? Well, in verse 17 of chapter one, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Here we come to the second marvelous provision of the Lord, a great fish that swallows Jonah. Let me ask you another question. Do you think this is a good thing or a bad thing? Is this the salvation that Jonah is going to be praying about later? I want to suggest to you that it's not. What the Lord does is he provides something that that accentuates judgment for Jonah. In the Bible world, the sea is the place of chaos. In the beginning, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, The earth was formless and void and darkness and water was on on the face of the earth. The deep was there and it was chaotic. There's just wind and waves. There is darkness. There is no definition. There is just a mess. The flush of a flood. And then God speaks. In the prophets that's creatively, dramatically described as God battling against the great sea monsters of the deep the sea is the place of chaos, the sea is the place where where there are forces that are opposed to God in Revelation where does the beast come out of? Out of the sea so suddenly what we're confronted with here is not A really cool cool means of transport for Jonah. This is actually judgment. This is one of the creatures opposed to God swallowing Jonah up and it's at God's behest. God has sent this and Jonah gets swallowed alive and begins to be eaten alive. This is to accentuate Jonah's judgment. This is to make it clear how God is feeling about his prophet. The dove is back in the flood but the dove is not flying over the waters. The the dove now is in the waters. Israel is disobedient. Israel herself is under judgment. Israel is being punished. Israel is being sent back to slavery and to the nations and the prodigal son finds himself in the midst of the pigs in the midst of uncleanness longing to eat what the pigs ate it's within that situation that Jonah prays he hasn't prayed yet but now he prays from the inside of the fish Jonah prayed to the Lord his God he said in my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me From the depths of the grave I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas and the current swirled about me. All your white waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But... You brought my life up from the pit O Lord my God When my life was ebbing away I remembered you Lord my uh, Lord, and my prayer rose to you To your holy temple Those who cling to worthless idols Forfeit the grace that could be theirs But I with a song of thanksgiving Will sacrifice to you What I have vowed I will make good Salvation comes from the Lord And the Lord commanded the fish And it vomited Jonah on the dry land. In the Hebrew, Jonah is at the centre of God's attention. He goes from the centre of the boat in the centre of a storm to the centre of a fish before he goes to the centre of the seas. And sometimes it's just not that good being the centre of attention. But that's where Jonah is. The centre of God's attention. Jonah prays. This is not an original prayer. It's actually a cut and paste job from about six or seven prayers from the prayer book that the Jews used. Psalms 1 to 150, that's the way that people learnt how to pray in Israel. That's been a tradition through the church for 2,000 years that, that people learn the Psalms so that they can learn to pray. And within this situation, Jonah hastily cobbles together uh, with a, uh, this psalm that he prays to God uh, you can see there's some really appropriate language no wonder it came back to him at this time as uh, as he finds himself descending into the depths of the sea Jonah is in deep water There's little hope again of uh, looking upon the temple of being in the place of God's presence if God doesn't act on his behalf the one that he has offended The one that he's turned his back on, the one he has refused to do his will, is the only one who can save him. The whole idea of Jonah being within the fish for three days and three nights is that he's as good as dead. Nobody comes back from that sort of experience. Three days and three nights, it's too late for you. You're gone. But God can do it. And his prayer is answered. God brings his life up from the pit. His life was ebbing away, and in his distress he distress he called to God and God heard his cry. But there's a bit in that prayer that I think we're meant to see we're not meant to go all the way with Jonah. Have a look at verses eight and nine. Jonah, in one sense, wants to contrast himself with those who cling to worthless idols. He talks about he's going to sacrifice to the Lord and he's going to complete the vows that he's made. I wonder if he has in mind the pagans. But we've already seen that the pagan sailors have already sacrificed to the Lord and already fulfilled their vows. And I think what we're meant to see is at one level Jonah, this prophet of God, this man of Israel, this man from Gath hepher is really no better than anyone else. He's certainly no better than the pagan sailors. And one would hope that he might be thinking about whether he's any better than the Ninevites. At this point, we see there really is very little difference between the pagan sailors and the Jewish prophet. And as God was gracious to the sailors, he is gracious to his prophet. And he commands the fish and it vomits, Jonah, back onto dry land. Although you would expect it to be a little bit wet, wouldn't you? A little bit soggy, a little bit smelly, damp maybe. But Jonah, in comparison, has got his feet back on dry ground. How do we find ourselves within this story? Well, I want to suggest to you that we've got to be very careful with the way that we do it. Normally when we read stories we put ourselves in the place of the main character. Uh, Nobody will blame us for not wanting to put ourselves in the place of Jonah. He's been in some pretty ugly spots. But we shouldn't do it for another reason. We shouldn't do it because here is God's prophet. Here is one of God's people. And unless we're Jews, that's not where we fit. We fit around the edge. We fit as one of the pagan sailors. We fit as one of the Ninevites. We fit as somebody who is on the periphery but drawn into this whole drama between God and his people. We fit in the place on the edge of the circle where suddenly we're introduced to God. This God who is so great. This God who is enormous. Jonah isn't at the centre of the story. He may be at the centre of the storm. He may be at the centre of the fish. But he's not at the centre of the story. God is. We fit with the sailors who have experienced judgement and yet found grace. We fit with the Ninevites who are blithely going on with their life and not realising that judgement is going to fall on me. that's where we fit those who didn't know God but have come to know him or those who yet haven't come to know God the main character Mr Dove Jonah has been disobedient thrown overboard chewed up then thrown up and he deserves a grisly end the grisly end of the fish but he doesn't get it He's given grace instead. He's given forgiveness. He's given another chance. Mr. God's people, as he climbs out of the butyric acid of judgment, as he washes off the reek of pilchards from his body, has time to reflect. Am I any better than anybody else? Am I any better than the sailors? Am I any better than the Ninevites? Does he have any high moral ground that he can stand on? Has he learned anything? Well we'll see more of that next week. Israel is brought back from after judgment. She's still called to be a light to the nations and the prodigal son is welcomed back home and embraced and given this family signet ring and given uh, sandals to wear and a cloak is put on his shoulders. But let's sit here on the beach for a little while longer. We'll turn our backs on Jonah. It's not a pretty sight. He turned the fish's stomach. He will turn our stomach next week. If we are Christians, if we are like the sailors who have come to a knowledge of God, then let's think about how gracious the Lord has been to us. Let's stand in Jonah's soggy shoes. Let's now place ourselves there. We are people who live by grace. God's grace has to be new every morning. We are people who live by grace. We do not deserve that we are in God's family. We do not deserve the fact that we are called children of God. We do not deserve that Jesus should take our place and die in our place and die our death and rise again and give us such great gifts of being forgiven. We deserve none of these things and we are called to live gracious lives as we have received so we are to give. But it's hard work remembering that. We so easily forget grace and sometimes we can think that somehow we earn it. And when we do that, it's easy to despise other people. But we've got to remember over and over and over again that we are people who breathe by grace. We are people who, who walk by grace. We are people who do everything by grace. Our heart beats by grace. And one of the most attractive things that we can be as God's people is to be gracious people. That when we meet non-Christians, when we meet people who have not heard the Gospel yet, people who have not responded to the Gospel yet, we are loving and we are caring. We are helpful. We are generous. We are open-hearted. Yes, we tell them the Gospel. We tell them the Gospel that, that also includes judgment. But we don't do it from the perspective of people who are better but from the perspective of people who have known grace and forgiveness and mercy. It is our demeanour and our attitude it's our witness that will determine how well people hear the message that not only includes judgement but finishes off with grace. Jonah teaches us that grace is needed by everybody and God's people more than anybody else should know that better than anybody else.